The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 20th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, I came across a fact that I could scarcely believe. New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, two-term governor, son of a governor, author, wrote a book called All Things Possible. He was paid $700,000 to write the book. Total sales... 3,008 copies sold. Wow, that is a low figure. I guess all things are not possible. I checked. The cover price is not $232, so this is not a break-even proposition for the publisher, HarperCollins, or the parent company, Rupert Murdoch's News Corps. Maybe Murdoch gave him the money, thinking tens of thousands of people were interested in Andrew Cuomo's story. Maybe he gave him the money not as a legal payment from a media titan to the governor of the state where the media titan runs his media business unmolested by the governor. Maybe that happened. All things are possible. Maybe Mr. Murdoch, or you know, the underling at the Harper Collins Company, I'm sure he never even told Mr. Murdoch that they'd be paying almost three quarters of a million dollars to the governor, which is roughly four times the governor's salary. Maybe that guy thought that people would pay to hear from Mr. Cuomo, even though Governor Cuomo is always saying things like this for free. The guiding star is service to the people. Which brings me to what I thought was the more amazing sales figure. 3,008 copies sold. That's certainly bad. This is badder. Audiobooks sold of all things possible. Are you ready? Reported in today's Wall Street Journal. Audiobooks. Andrew, you want to guess? You know the rule of guessing, right? You got to make it look good. So guess a pretty high number. I'm looking for a high number. So you could be shocked by how low it is. But no, seriously, guess how many books the governor sold. Okay, 1,500. 13. Not 1,300. 13 total audiobooks. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear a guy who says things like this? The budget document doesn't use a lot of words. It uses numbers. So there's not a lot of fudge factor. So I got the audiobook. We're now up to 14 audiobooks sold. Actually, I just got a sample, so it's still at 13. And I understood. Here now is the audiobook of Andrew Cuomo's All Things Possible. It is my aim that these candidly told stories, some of which were exhilarating to retell, others discomforting, may illuminate the hard-won insights I've accumulated. That is not Andrew Cuomo. This is Andrew Cuomo. We're going to pass the Women's Equality Act because discrimination and inequality against women stops in New York State. Again, not Andrew Cuomo? During the 19 months I've been running for governor, I made hundreds of speeches at hundreds of venues. Andrew Cuomo. That's trickle-down. We heard about it in the 80s. We tried it in the 80s. It didn't work in the 80s. Been there, done that. We're not going back. Look, guys, audiobook producers, you went highbrow. You went trained, stentorian voice full of modulation and diction. What we want is Queen's. Andrew Cuomo was in the same high school class as Ray Romano. 
He belonged to that tradition of New York talkers who are brilliant, but sound like they're trying to chisel you down on a quote for bodywork for your car. Men like Pete Hamill, Alan Dershowitz, yes, Mario Cuomo. So where can you get a better reader for a book like that? Someone who not only talks for a living, but can talk for a living. Hmm. You should factor, factor, fudge factor that into your equation, because right now the equation is 700,000 equals 13 audiobooks. On the show today, a radio show, another radio show that's actually these days not even a radio show, just like our radio show is not a radio show, but it's innovative, it's comedic. We're going to interview a comedy duo who's just thinking in ways I don't even understand. And in the spiel, Lithuania, I'll explain why. But now, Worcester, Sharpling, best show. The best show is three hours of mirth, merriment, and mayhem, which up until recently was on the New Jersey-based community radio station, WFMU. But host Tom Sharpling took the show, its music, its bevy of huge-name guests from the world of comedy, off the air and onto his website, thebestshow.net. Now, sometimes you'll hear the phrase, a unique form of comedy. We say a unique form of comedy maybe to describe an innovative comedian or a more or less genre show like Louie, which is a sitcom like Broad City, which is connected sketches that's A, well done and B, has some elements of the fantastic. The best show is really, really a unique form of comedy. For one thing, they have invented a world. Well, it's really a town. It's Newbridge, New Jersey. And over the years, they've stocked this town with characters and roads and businesses and feuds and controversies. The vector for this sprawling invention is the weekly phone call from some Newbridge resident. It's usually a Newbridge resident, could be another guy, like the guy who runs the Batter Butler restaurant or the grandfatherly overseer of the local power pop music scene, calls himself power pop pop pop. And this guy will call and we'll find out things about Newbridge and it's just a long, slow bake until we figure out what the joke is. And these two guys are Tom Sharpling and John Worcester, you're here right now. Hello, guys. Hey. Hey, how are you? Let's take my favorite character, or maybe just the one I'm most familiar with, Philly Boy Roy. How many times has he shown up, would you say? Well, we, we know exactly how many times. We uh, we put this box set together that, yeah. that's coming out soon. We were completely astounded to find out that he called 109 times, I think. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. 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 And so that's the most, right? That's the most, yeah. And and he's a real go-to character. If I, I tour all the time in bands, so I'm on on the road a lot. And he's, Super Chunk, Mountain Goats, uh, Bob Mold. So he's the one that's the the easiest to to throw something together for. If if you know we we just don't have time, so I can often be found in a back alley behind a rock club doing this crazy voice. And not just because of the banker's dozen of peanut shoes I ate. You mean a baker's dozen. No, Blob. A baker's dozen is 13, right? Uh-huh, yes. A banker's dozen is 113. So you ate 113 peanut chews? Yeah, do you know the lineage of the banker's dozen? No. Well, it dates back to when Dale Carnegie and Milburn Drysdale was running the company. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was it? You said Milburn Drysdale? Yeah. Who is that? Crack the Beverly Hillbillies much? It don't sound like you do. Give me an example of a scripted one. Even it's you're saying it's more than beats. It's oh, yeah. really pretty much scripted. Yeah, by now, I think in the last few years, I, I would say 
they're about 85, 90% scripted at this point. Like, like uh, we did one where um, Tom thinks he's calling the author of a Bruce Springsteen book. Yeah. The joke is that this guy's plumber answers the phone and Tom conducts an hour-long interview with the plumber who is making up all this stuff about Bruce Springsteen. And knows nothing about right. Bruce Springsteen. It's, it's a fantastical thing about Bruce. And that one was, re- you know, that was really scripted out. During the day, Bruce is operating this m- machine that they called the Monster at Consolidated Cardboard. The Monster? The Monster. It, basically, uh, he would shove the... The reject boxes, the ones that didn't make the cut for whatever reason, quality mm-hmm. control deemed them not strong enough, okay. I guess. Yeah. So, he, so he had to shove these rejected boxes into this machine by hand. A- and the monster would first blast the cardboard with this intense flame. And then these blades would come up and start shredding the cardboard just like an inch away from his fingers. Wow. He could have been severely handicapped yeah, I mean, this is he's just makes... for some reason he's just so funny to put things on yeah like one of the jokes it's like making fun of the pope yes. pretty much <laughs> yeah and one of the things is like yeah bruce is, is he's so concerned with with like dying poor that he when he's off the road he gets a job at pep boys <laughs> and he's just stocking the shelves and they hate when he sings <laughs> and he's a good employee a good and employee. they always <laughs> offer to promote him the manager and he won't do it he That's won't like, take yeah, it that's yeah. what a good self-effacing <laughs> guy is he's also this guy who living in New Jersey, you just hear stories from all sorts of people who are just like, oh, he goes to this place. He's oh, around. I see, I see him at the gym. I saw him at this show. He was just hanging out in the background. I ran yeah. into him at a record store. Just There's just decades of stories because this guy just lives in the town yeah, yeah. and kind of doesn't go around with a eight-person security team or entourage. He acts like he is a normal guy just do, living his life, and everybody falls in line with that. So... It's, he's kind of this strange combination of the biggest guy, but with like an actual... He's a local guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which makes guy. it just is this collision that is really funny and fascinating. I got a 69 Chevy with a 396. Fuely heads and a hearse on the floor. Double chrome rings on the outer edge on each of its six tail lights. It's also got a wide trim running from the front bumper to the rear of the car. The Chevy Bowtie logo on top of the grill that I got at the Pep Boys downtown. When comedians say they like you, do they ever say, has anyone ever articulated why? It's funny, but why would someone, why would a professional comedian who knows where the jokes are going to come from usually next time, why so often do they find it so funny? I I think it's something not a lot of people are really doing. I think maybe that's what that's what people kind of kind of key in on. Like it's it's not it's not stand up, and I, th- I think it's just different enough in its presentation that it catches people's ears. It's strangely retro in a way yeah. that it's it's like old timey two man comedy on the radio, and like Conan O'Brien said. We met him at a thing, and his wife said he just breaks the thing apart and starts analyzing, shows how this works and that works, and just like really dissecting the the math of it. And it's like that was insanely flattering that that's 
that he could see. It was flattering that there was math to it, apparently. I didn't even know that. And he was break, He started breaking it apart. So, yeah. But we really do, you know, kind of talking, putting the box set together and talking about the box set is m- more analysis we've ever done in the last small window of conversations about things than we've ever done from the minute we started doing this until now. It's all been... Just doing it. Yeah, and what makes us laugh. Yeah, Just... and it, it's so it's it's so weird to me because we never talk about like how it works or what we do. So I, I don't even know what to say half the time. It's just something that we do. Yeah. There, there will be a point where when we're done talking about it, the door will close yeah. and then we will not talk about the mechanics of it. <laughs> and maybe we can find some new mechanics that then nobody can know how that works yeah. too. Yeah, you know what I mean? You don't want to always keep... Yeah. You can't you can't be breaking down your swing all the time, or else you'll never just mm-hmm. get in yeah. the flow. But has anyone said anything that you've said? You know what? You're right, and it's influenced the way you do the show the next week. I personally feel like, for me, doing the full three hour show and then us doing the you know forty five minutes an hour of comedy within it, there was a point when I I was such a massive consumer of comedy and just really trying to just take as much in and learn as much about it and listening to everything I could. But then there's a point where it's like, if I'm going to do this every week and we're going to do this every week, you have to pick whether you're going to take things in or put things out. You kind of can't do both at the same rate anymore. And I feel like it's past the point where I'm kind of looking to pick up on other people's things and get kind of thrown off the path that we're on so that so i i don't listen to as much stuff as maybe i should or could because i really am interested in taking what we do and keeping that as pure as possible and not kind of just letting the latest thing kind of slip in and because then it's almost like that thing where you know when there was those bands that would just change their look every year and hope people didn't you know like the turtles were like one year they were like a surf group then four months later they're a folk group then six months later they sound like the love and spoonful then a year later they're doing psychedelic it's just like we're I, i think what we're doing is just it is us and we're not looking to make it seem like it's the, always this year's version of it. You know those stores and strip malls that are super holiday specific? Yeah. yeah. Like the Halloween store. Yeah, yeah. Well, every October 1st, Bruce goes to the one in um, West Eastbridge, and mm-hmm. he applies for just a normal job. To work at what, like work retail? Like as, as a stock guy behind the counter, yeah, but there's, there's this old Ukrainian guy who runs it, uh-huh. and he has no idea who Bruce is. It's, yeah. it's insane. Like, he's an older guy, so he has no sure. concept of who Bruce is. Yeah. He doesn't recognize him or okay. anything. So he makes Bruce wait in line with the other deadbeats applying for jobs, and, and then he takes his application. Apparently, every year he looks at it and just goes, too short to stock shelf, and sends him off. Tom Sharpling, John Worcester, they're the guys behind The Best Show. Now at thebestshow.net. That's it. Thebestshow.net, yeah. We got the box sets coming out. More live shows? Somewhere down the line, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. 
With digital cameras, smartphones, and social media, so many of us are getting into photography. That's why you need to check out the lecture series, Fundamentals of Photography from the Great Courses. I have been watching this. It is a great learning experience for anyone interested in taking photos, no matter what type of camera you have. And it's taught by a professional photographer, a National Geographic fellow, Joel Sartori. It teaches you how to look through the camera to frame shots. It teaches you about lighting, all the stuff that you know you have to know, but you don't know how you're going to know. Well, here's how you're going to know it. Through the lecture series, Fundamentals of Photography from The Great Courses. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have over 500 courses on topics from history to science to art. Watch or listen with DVD, CD, streaming, digital downloads, or with The Great Courses app. Here is our deal. For a limited time, The Great Courses will give you up to 80% off the original price from eight of their best-selling courses, and that includes the fundamentals of photography. You can choose from eight courses, get up to 80% off the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's how you qualify for an 80% offer. Thegreatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel, my lith list. The other day, Wall Street Journal columnist Brett Stevens wrote this. The administration is now waging an unprecedented campaign of personal vilification against Benjamin Netanyahu of a sort they'd never dream of waging against a Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, all this was prior to the BB backtrack. Yes, the Palestinians can have a state. No, they can't have a state. Oh, I got elected. Sure, they can have a state again. But let's talk about the idea that the administration wouldn't dream of criticizing Erdogan. Well, I would. He is trending towards the strongman. Of course, I'm not the administration. I don't have to be diplomatic. But maybe there's another value to going on the record and decrying dictators. In that talk that you just heard, the one I just did with Tom Sharpling, before the part that actually aired, I was talking to Tom about this legendary New York radio talk show host, this guy named Bob Grant. And as Tom said, his politics were odious, but he's very good at presentation. It was very gripping. At the end of every show, he would say, your influence counts. Use it. Get Gaddafi. I remember as like a nine-year-old kid, I was like, who is this Gaddafi? So, but for Bob Grant decrying Gaddafi, maybe I wouldn't know about Gaddafi. So let's do it. Let's decry those dictators. All right. I'm always talking about Nicolas Maduro, president of Venezuela. See past episodes. There's a bad guy. Then you got Erdogan. Why? What's wrong with him? Described birth control as treason. Wants to shut down Twitter. He told Latin American Muslim leaders that Muslims discovered America in the year 1178. Lives in a 1,100-room palace. Not a great guy. Robert Mugabe. He's like the anti-LeBron James. Follow me here. LeBron James should be MVP of the NBA every year. He's just always the best player. But it gets boring, and you want to spread it around to different guys. Same with Mugabe. This guy's always the worst dictator. He's been the worst dictator since the 60s. We sometimes sleep on how bad a dictator he is. He's a terrible dictator. But what about the good world leaders? Okay, let me just pick a couple of world leaders that I want to cite for meritorious achievement in the face of badness, that badness being Vladimir Putin, because he's, of course, on the list. so bad I didn't even have to mention him. Now, in the past, on the gist, I have given kudos to the president of Uruguay, Edward Mujica. He's out of office now. Today, I want to cite another, a tag team of world leaders doing their job to stand up to Putin. One is Dalia Gruboskate. Dalia Gruboskate and her... I guess employee, Linus Linkevichus. 
They are the prime minister and foreign minister of Lithuania. And man, are they not taking Putin's incursions in stride. Grubaskite once told an interviewer that they, the Lithuanians, were once occupied by Russia. Therefore, they don't want to let the Russians occupy Ukraine. We know this neighbor. We lived with this neighbor 50 years under occupation. And we never, never, ever will allow anybody to occupy us once more. Grubaskite is a black belt, by the way, and says her political role models are Margaret Thatcher and Mahatma Gandhi, which is sort of like having Eminem and Moby as your musical heroes. Then there's Linus Linkeviches, described today as the husky-rumpled foreign minister of Lithuania. Stout and bedraggled? No. Wall Street Journal went with husky and rumpled. He's, come on, the guy's just fat, all right? He's like Chris Christie fat, but he's also sharp and he's steadfast. Here he is talking to the Royal United Services Institute, like a think tanky thing over in Great Britain. He's explaining why Lithuania is doing so much more than its European Union co-members. In fact, they're arming the Ukrainians, not out of beneficence, but out of a perceived, perhaps actual threat of what Vladimir Putin can do next to Lithuania. And we can do nothing. So this is really about us, not about Ukraine, because this precedent could be very dangerous in the future. It's already happening. I like these two, the unlife Lith and his black belted boss. Linkeviches says you got to speak to the Russians clearly and simply. If message is clear, they're taking this as, as a seriously and then making some sort of reasoning. But if it's not clear, if it's, one can say polite, diplomatic, it's n- not necessarily will be reciprocity, mm. but it will be taken as a weakness. So don't dismiss this lith with pith. I stand with the lith forthwith, not the Swiss are the Swiss. They're listless and lithless. That's right, I'm pissed. And I herewith ask you to note that for the record from here to Vilnius. The gist is therewith produced by Andrea Salenzi. She'd have been dismissed, but won back her job from managing producer Joel Meyer in a game of whist. We depend on executive producer Andy Bowers for the unexpected twist. We're on Yo! What you do is you subscribe to Yo! and then sign up for podcasts, and it will let you know every time the podcast is ready. The gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out all the shows on the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply. The gist. As you can see, I'm no linguist, but that's the show, sealed with a kiss. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Adam Davidson of NPR's Planet Money and the New York Times Magazine, and I am having so much fun hosting the second season of Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I got to find out what an average day is for Adam McKay. He wrote and directed and produced all sorts of great comedies by Will Ferrell and is now working on a really great financial thriller. I talked to a bail bondsman, the guy at the United Nations who was in charge of stopping Ebola, and a whole bunch of others. Find us online at slate.com slash podcasts or just look for us in iTunes.